this is our last session of our series on plenty and scarcity, um, which has been dealing from a bunch of different perspectives um, with the question of um, there's a lot of like material wealth and particularly as pertains to food um, out there. And yet it doesn't seem to get to all the people that need it. Um, so we started on... Um, we started on Monday with a shiur about scarcity and halakha, and that wasn't particularly about food. That was just about scarcity in general. People who need to make decisions between, let's say, keeping the lights on and observing mitzvot or having enough food to eat for Shabbat and or like having fancy food for Shabbat versus having enough food to eat throughout the week or enough wines for Kiddush or stuff like that. So it was mostly about food, but it was like particularly around like food-based food, let's say. Um, and we saw a few different things there. But one of the things that really stood out was this feeling that based on the, um, based on the statement of Rabbi Akiva, um, that it's much better not to be beholden to other people. And then that plays out in other areas of Halakha where you don't see the answer being to scarcity being uh, well, people should just provide it for you. The answer to scarcity is, okay, well, let's help you prioritize, or um, maybe let's see if you could borrow from somebody, but that one kind of came up really kind of late. The Mishnah Bura was the one who recommended that. Um, but in the Talmud, it's really like, well, if you can't afford Chavez candles or Han, and you can't afford Chavez candles and Han candles, here's how we're going to help you think that through and ultimately decide that you should spend the money on your Chavez candles, things like that. Um, and the other thing we saw was just that, like, scarcity was not foreign to um, halachic texts. Scarcity was almost an assumption. And actually, um, we often sort of misread these texts when we aren't atten- attuned to the scarcities that they're sort of assuming. Um, so tonight we're going to go even earlier than any of the texts we looked at on Monday. And we're going to look um, at some stories, some narratives in Tanakh where you have food scarcity and food distribution or food redistribution. Um, and what I'm hoping is that we'll bring to that some of the things that we have thought about these past two nights, first with Mazon um, and then with our panel last night. Uh, for those of you who were with us for that, um, I just thought it was so interesting. Uh, and I was really Oh, thanks, Susan. <laughs> and I was really grateful that it seemed like n- these three people had not like previously kind of all been in the same space, just sort of based on the questions they were asking each other. Um, and so I was sort of like, wow, like maybe we kind of accomplished something here just by bringing these people together and introducing them to one another. Um, so that in and of itself was kind of fun. Uh, but then the conversation was really, really interesting. And I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, so now we're going to look at some of these very early texts about food distribution, one of which is probably quite familiar to you from the Joseph story. Well, of course, it gets like mashed up because the story of Joseph um, kind of redistributing Egypt's wealth gets cut into the story of his reunification with his family, his father's death, all of that. And, um, and so I tried to like just isolate this one narrative. Um, so in, on the story sheet, which I'll pull up in a second, um, you'll see that there's like big hunks kind of missing. And those are all of the like Joseph and his brother's components. Now, of course, Joseph and his brother's component can't honestly be separated from the narrative of the redistribution of Egypt's wealth because you see such an interesting thing, right? You see this country that is having a famine and has so much that people can come from other countries to come get food and that's what leads to the reunification um, and then the fact that they 
go home, but it's still so terrible that the brothers come back again. Um, all of that is obviously very much tied into the whole situation of Joseph's food distribution apparatus. Like those stories are in a certain way inseparable because one drives the other. Um, but we're going to just really, really focus on the apparatus itself and totally eliminate the Joseph and his brothers piece of the story and sort of see what arises from looking at the text in that way. Um, and then we're going to look at some of the texts from later on in the Torah. We're going to look at some of the texts from Devarim and see how those texts speak to Joseph's food distribution um, and see uh, and, and look at just like two commentators about that real quick. And then the other thing we'll look at is a later, much, much, much later, the whole other end of Tanakh um, in Shivat Zion, which is a period of time very close to my heart. Um, we will look at Nehemiah, who came across another somewhat similar situation, not of the same scale, um, but another sort of masterful administrator, Jewish political figure, and, and in many ways quite similar to Joseph. We meet, we, when we first meet Nehemiah, he is serving in the, in the Persian court, um, and he is kind of like the right hand man of the Persian king. Um, so it's very like kind of Joseph y figure. There's a lot of connections between Nehemiah and Esther, but then Esther to Joseph. Um, Rabbi Silver, amongst others, has written pretty extensively about that. Um, so, so we have, so we're all in, in this kind of same world. And then we see this Nehemiah figure doing a kind of Joseph E, like food distribution activity. Um, but I hope you'll, you'll notice with me that he goes about it quite differently. Um, and, and maybe in a way that's sort of more in line with what, um, with where Devarim goes with it. So that's sort of, um, where we're headed. Um, and, and the very last thing that we'll look at is, um, just one line from Isaiah, from Ishael, from Isaiah about, um, kind of the prophetic vision of how food distribution, um, should work. That, that might, that when I think about it, it really does sort of align with, um, some of what we heard last night or even, um, or even from Razon about their, their, their kind of messianic dreams for how, um, how or, you know, but, but that they're practically working towards as well um, about how food distribution could sort of optimally work. So here's, so as I mentioned, we're going to start out with this kind of paired back version of the Joseph story that completely cuts his brothers out of the narrative and just focuses on his um, food redistribution. So we start out in Prashat and Kate's um, after Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, but then beyond the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph goes on to kind of give a suggestion about like what someone who had such a dream with the meaning of such a dream should do about it. So, which is, you know, kind of, um, it's really kind of like going there, you know, like often we sort of apologize when we give um, <laughs> advice that isn't asked for. And it's not like Pharaoh says to Joseph, like, oh, like, what should I do about it? That's crazy. What should I do about it? Uh, Joseph is sort of like, here's your dream's interpretation, and here's exactly what I think you should do, and Pharaoh sort of says, yeah, good idea. So here's what it is. So here's Joseph's um, um, kind of opening salvo of a plan. Um, he says, that's Find a, the smartest person you know, and put him over the whole land, put him in charge of the whole land. So Pharaoh should appoint overseers over the land. The chinesh at Eretz Mitzrayim. This is a very challenging word. What chinesh means? We're going to come back to it. Um, you should chinesh the land of Egypt. 
during those seven years of plenty. So we're going to hold on to this word, it's going to come up again um, at the end of the story here. But so just two interpretations from the outset. It could mean from, this is what Rashi suggests, it could mean that they're going to be armed, the same way that the Jewish people came out of Egypt armed. Um, and so it could, so what it would mean here would be not that you like literally like got your sword ready, but it would mean you're going to be prepared. You're going to be organized. You're going to, uh, Operation Warp Speed, right? Like you're going to put the military onto it. Um, and, um, and so that could be one, one sense of the Chimish. And another sense of the Chimish could literally mean you're going to collect a fit of the produce of the land of Egypt in that time. Um, and so then there's a question of, okay, in what way did Joseph collect this fit? Is it that there'll be so much that there'll be a fifth extra each year for seven years, and then you will buy up that fit? Um, now, like, that doesn't then get you through the next seven years. So, like, there's a question of sort of, like, why that plan makes sense if that's what the plan is, or maybe of all the people who are currently growing, you're going to take a fifth of what they produce every year for the next seven years, but then you're also going to grow more, I don't know, something in that direction maybe. Um, but there's a question of, is it like a tax? You just like force everyone to get it to him? Or is it that Pharaoh is going to use the country's like wealth and reserves to buy um, to buy um, that fifth? So if you go the, you could go the Russian direction, you're going to just be prepared. Or you could go that there's going to be a fifth. And we're going to come back to this like fifth idea because that'll, that'll come back later. But sort of just three different approaches to what that word means and what then the plan is, right? Because that's those are three like really big differences. Like Rashi's plan is just like somehow you're going to get it together and then you're going to do the following. Whereas the other two are, no, like you're actually going to collect from the people um, either by forcing them to pay you or... Um, or um, just or buying it from them um and now like if, just to like think through those options for a second but forcing them to pay you um could make sense if you think of it as like a social security tax right so like we're gonna force you to set this aside but like when the time comes we're gonna get it back out to you for free right that could be a model we see that model in the united states um, obviously, and in the scale of the United States over time, that because of like the way population grows, it doesn't work very well here, and Social Security is in a crisis. But over the course of 14 years, that probably would be a pretty, a much more kind of reasonable model because you're not going to have a like population explosion over that time, unless of course you have people coming in from all these other countries, which we see exemplified by Joseph's brothers. So we know that there is some population explosion. They're feeding people who aren't just Egyptians. Um, but any event, um, so that would be the like tax model, which would make the most sense if they weren't then going to have to buy it, or that, um, or they bought it from them, in which case you're going to then force them to buy it back from you, and that would be a different model that um, could potentially make sense. I give you money now, but like you, you wait because like I'm taking a gamble on it, and you're going to actually maybe come buy it back at like a marked up price or something like that. And actually, I'm going to make money off of I, the government, am going to make money off of this gamble. Like, there's a lot of different right. So each of those interpretive possibilities of the Kimish at Aretz tribe, all of those are brought down by different commentators, and um, and they all kind of lay out quite different uh, possibilities of what this plan exactly is and how it works. And how it makes sense. Um, but here's what, what's going to happen. However, you manage to collect the grain, you're going to collect it. 
ויקפצו לכל אוכל השנים הקרובות, הבאות האלה, from all these good years that are coming, ויצבו זר, כך היה פרעה, אוכל בערים ושמרו. The grain will be collected under Pharaoh's authority, um, and the food will be kind of stored near the cities from which it comes. The food will be a, a reserve, that's how they're translating it here. Picadon can also be um, like if you, if you borrow money from me and I like take your watch as a collateral, that's another thing that a picadon can be. Um, so that, that, that really like puts a different kind of span or perspective on, uh, on what's happening here. Um, so it'll be a reserve for the land, a collateral for the land. Um, for the Shava Shnei Hara'av, Asher Tiyana Ba'aretz Mitzrayim, Velo Tikaret Ha'aretz Ba'ra'av. And so it, that will be um, in savings for the seven years of famine, so that the land will not perish in the famine. Um, it's, it's interesting here that you, you're talking about the land perishing in the famine instead of the people perishing in the famine. Um, and... That could be something about the way that Pharaoh and Joseph actually see the land, which is that the people are secondary to the land itself. Because part of what you're doing when you're taking grain and storing it away is that grain is also seed. Um, so when you're talking specifically about grain, you're also talking about the ability to someday in the future plant, right? Like if you have seven years of famine and you put nothing away before that, first of all, the humans aren't going to survive that anyways, right? Nobody's going to survive it. But also at the end of those seven years, you might get rain, but without seeds, nothing's growing. So like, you have to put away something to plant when the rain starts falling again. Um, so that's another, another piece of it, which is that like the long-term ramifications for the growing capability of the land, um, if you don't collect seed, are also very high. So on the one hand, it seems very like dehumanizing that the focus is on the arets and not the am, on the land and not the nation. Um, and on the other hand, like there is something smart about it in the sense that like putting away seed could will limit the damage beyond um, the earth to, to like the kind of bare minimum of what it is. Okay, so then we've just jumped, by the way, about 10 verses. Um, and here's what happens. So the land produced during these years of abundance, it produced a ton. So he gathers all the grain of the seven years of the land of Egypt, and he stores the grain in the city, he puts in each city, the grain from the fields that surrounded it. So it's this very like localized thing that and they keep kind of like reinforcing how local it is, which is um which is gonna be interesting in a second also. So just like note that. Um and then um it just says, I mean it's bore you saying bar kechol haya, right? Kechol haya also like when you're talking about the Jews and the promise that um, Abraham is like right that's what's ringing in your ears when you when you're appreciated and you hear something kechol hayam and here it's food, but maybe what that also foretells is that it's going to be bringing back together the descendants of Abraham, um, this very like massive collection of food. And there does seem to be something a little bit like miraculous going on here because whatever Joseph's initial plan was, this homage, um, somehow Joseph ends up with way more than that, an incredibly large Quantity like the sands of the sea, until he couldn't measure it anymore, it could not 
be measured. That's again, this like Abraham promise language now manifesting with Joseph and food, like very kind of strange um, to see it here. And again, and, 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 and my best, the best I have to offer you on that is first of all, like Joseph being the inheritor of Abraham in, in here and, and the inheritor of Abraham kind of wisdom that he is able to kind of give over to, to secular leadership in the way that Abraham does a few times. Um, but also that this is what's then going to bring the nation together and, and fulfill the Abrahamic um, kind of promise of Reuben of Victorian that your your uh, descendants will go to Egypt and they'll be, they'll be enslaved there and they'll come out of it. Um, and and this is um, and this is maybe the the twinklings of the beginning of that. So um, just like a, another little like literary feature to note. So again, so here we have the plan, right? This is the plan. And then this actually happens, and it's way, it happens way better than anyone could have imagined, better than Joseph could have imagined, um, and, and a hint that there's something about like the Abrahamic promise that is to come. Okay. I, I had a comment on the um, parish in the land. It's yeah. actually, the verb is carrot, to be cut off, off from the land, and that verb comes back in Deuteronomy with like, before the Israelites are going to go into the land of Israel, that God will like carrot the people in there at the time. So there seems to be something about like this connection between being cut, like, so you're being cut out of the land and it seems to be almost like you're being primed for invasion or you're being primed for like dispossession. Um, Wait, where just, are you saying carrot here? Um, Tikarat. Sorry, just remind Hello, me. Hello, Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, like this idea of land being like, like there just seems to be something about dispossession. So, even though it may seem like kind of maybe insensitive, I think is how you put it that it, like they're mentioning the land and not the people. It seems to be like you're going to be on the brink of of Egypt literally disappearing, which is like mind boggling when you think of how established this is as a nation. Oh, so meaning like 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 Sonoma Mura kind of disappearing, like that kind of natural disaster. Well, I think it's more that like somebody's going to take over your land. Like you're going to be so weakened. Egypt, the storehouse of like the universe, like there's always food, you know, like every single yeah. time there's a famine, go to Egypt. But like this is how close it's going to be. It's going to be that even Egypt could have been taken over. Like it's going to be that drastic. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and then this verb does come back in, in Deuteronomy a few times about like, like I will, like, like God says, like, I will, I will, I will um, dispossess people of the land before moving in the Israelites. Sorry to derail things, but it, I got on this a few weeks ago too. <laughs> um, so that's great. Let's hold on to the dispossession because I, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that what it foretells is dispossession of the Israelites. I think it foretells also dispossession of the Egyptians, which is what actually. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, that's what happened. I mean. That's what I think is happening here. It's like, it's that close. You're, you're like borderline. Like this is going to be. Well, this I don't level think it's board, Hold on, Zoe. Let's come back to this conversation in two seconds. Let's read what what actually happens, right? So, so we have a plan. We have the good years, and now we have the bad years. Okay. So here's the bad years story. It's a little long. Minus the brothers. Okay. So Belachem and Mikol Haaretz. So again, Aretz here. Um, but the question, but I mean, the JPS translates it as all the world, which actually makes sense in the context of we know that in Canaan there's also no food. Uh, so like, is this actually some global disaster? Is it just that like Egypt is the center of the world? Is it, as Zoe was just saying, like Egypt is like the food bank of the world because they have the Nile, we never have famine. So if Egypt has a famine, it's terrible everywhere. 
But anyways, whatever. That's like a whole thing. Um, and maybe that's why you have RS before that. And that's like a, a possibility, right? We've just jumped forward. Um, right. This is, this is Brayshoot 41. We're in Brayshoot 47. So just so you know, like this is not like a continue. This is a narrative that I have sliced and diced. Um, um, so just, just to like hold, hold that with our, um, with our reading. They're languishing. Both countries, both Egypt and Canaan, are languishing in the hunger. So, so the question, right? So we we had described that like this plan of like being homish the land um, could have been like a social security type of plan of like, we're going to collect your food now, we're going to store it for you locally in your cities, it'll be right here, you're not going to have to worry about it, and then we're going to redistribute it um, back to you, and that could have been like a social security type plan where people just like take a tax and then return them. But that is not what happened, because what we see happening in this verse is Joseph gathers all of the money in all of Egypt and in all of Canaan as payment for the rations that he had. So even, so even if he took that homish as a tax, it, so if he took that homish as a tax, then he's like double taxing them by making them buy it back off of him. Or he paid them for it, in which case he was like taking on risk because um, like it could be that this wasn't needed and then he would have spent an enormous amount of money and now he's getting, now the government's getting the money back. That's like a more gentle read. Um, Anyways, something in that direction, or one of those two directions, which are, are in fact quite different from each other. Um, but, but certainly they're, um, they're paying Joseph for that privilege. And then, There's no money left anywhere in Egypt and in Canaan. And everyone comes to Joseph and says, Give us bread. We're just gonna die in front of you. There is no money left. So Joseph says, So Joseph says, okay, bring your livestock and I will sell you against your livestock because the money is gone. Now, an interesting thing is that like if there there's no food, like why haven't they eaten their livestock? So that's kind of like a just kind of left with a question mark there. Um, and that maybe ties into like some of the the other things we learn about Egyptians that like they they didn't necessarily eat their livestock or like they thought that some of these animals were maybe holy or or things like that or they they weren't being eaten by them. Anyways, um, okay. So so Joseph says, okay, bring your livestock and I will um, and I'll pay you for your livestock and food. So they bring all their livestock. They view it. They handle it. They see it. They tell them. They see it. They see it. They see it. They so they have a full, they can get a full year's worth of food by giving Joseph all of their livestock. But that year ended. We have so that year passes and they come back to Joseph and they say there is nothing left. Other than our bodies and our land. Why should we die in front of your eyes? Buy us, buy our bodies and buy our land with bread. And we 
and our land, you will be servants to Pharaoh, and you will give us um, seed, and we will live and not die, and the land will not become waste. So then what happens here, literally, right, is Avadim uh, sounds familiar, right? Um, that every everyone in Egypt becomes a slave to Pharaoh. But he can Yosef the call Mami tribe. Joseph buys all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. Because everyone in Egypt sold off their property. Because the because the famine was so bad that they are at the throne. So now Pharaoh owns all of the property in Egypt and all of the bodies in Egypt and all the money in Egypt and all the food in Egypt and all of the uh, livestock. That's that's where we're up to so far, except for the priests, right? So the, the priests are and so Pharaoh would support the, the priests um, without them having to pay for it. So then Joseph says to the people, okay, uh, here's where we're at. I have today purchased you and your land for peril. Now that we've like achieved this, somehow the famine is over. Take seed and go plant your land. And you will, and once it grows, you will give a fifth of that. So here's our, we had a chumash at the beginning, now we have a chumashit again. You're going to give a fifth of what you grow to Pharaoh. Um, and, and four fifths of it will be for you. Um, and to plant your field again and to eat um, and, and to take care of your families. Oh, sorry. We, we skipped the part that was important. Um, we skipped this verse. And uh, I don't want to skip this verse. It's a very important one. Now I was confused what happened to it. Um, so after Joseph buys everyone's stuff and bodies and property, before he lets them replant, he moves everyone. So that's the other thing about the, the Zoe was talking about Karate before people being destroyed, the land being destroyed, people being broken off from their land. So once you've sold all land to Pharaoh, then they do this crazy thing where, which is, Similar to what happens, and this then gets discussed in the Gemara actually, where they compare Joseph to the, Assy- the evil Assyrian kings, um, who this was their, their tactic as well to show how much Pharaoh owned the land. He said, Don't let's not pretend like you're living on your inherited property and it's yours and nothing's changed and just Pharaoh owning it is a technicality. No, everyone's gonna move. You're, you, you're from this city, you're gonna move to that city. This city's gonna move to that city. This city's gonna move to that city. Um, from one end of the land, right? You thought you're from Boston. Well, welcome to Wyoming. Like that's really what's happening here. Um, um, this forced population transfer of today would be called genocide. Um, it's an, um, and so that it's, it's like a quite, quite serious thing. And Joseph is doing it here. So, um, that's and 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 it, even within our own tradition, you have like hints of critique of of of, of this thing in particular. But we're going to talk about kind of the whole the whole model. And, okay, so sorry, I just wanted to emphasize that that line for a second. That I think that might be when Zoe was talking about Kareem before. I thought maybe um, maybe it actually like foretells this exact thing that's happening here. Okay, 
Um, so then, right, so then you're in your new place, right? You're from Boston. Welcome to Wyoming. Here's some grains of plants in Wyoming. And when your grain grows in Wyoming, you are going to um, give a fifth of it as tax. Um, and the rest of it will, you'll use to plant next year to feed your family. And the whole people say, thank God, um, you have saved our lives, which is what Joseph says to his brothers, right? He says, God sent me to be a life giver. And that's how people feel about him. They say, and they say, yes, like we're so grateful. We will be We will be servants or serve maybe to Pharaoh. Um, I see that there's something in the chat, but I just want to finish it up. Um, and, and Joseph needed a rule until this very day, which is always, obviously, for those of you who are students of Tanakh, you know that that happens a few times over the course of Tanakh, like a place will get a name change, and it'll be, that's the name of this place until this very day, um, which, you know, scholars are very interested in that type of thing, and we'll see um, one kind of brief read of that later. Um, but but that this was kind of the way it works in Egypt until this very day. Um, that um, Pharaoh owns the entire land of Egypt, only um, only this like uh, only what where the priests live doesn't go to Pharaoh. Now there's a few complicated things here, like when Joseph's family comes, um, which like might be before this chronologically. Like if we read the Torah in order, then it's before this. Um, they get given Eretz Goshen by Pharaoh. So you have to ask there, like, did Pharaoh already kind of have a claim to land and could put populations wherever he wanted? Or was that as part of the big population everyone moving around anyways, um, Joseph's family gets Eretz Goshen as part of that? Um, or um, he could just like give permission, but really it was actually privately owned land, or people who own land were privately owned and Goshen was open and available. There's lots of different options, but it does kind of raise questions um, in that direction. Okay, let's take a look at this question from the chat. Well, okay, Nechama asks, why is forced population transfer considered genocide? Is it that harsh? Um, I think the answer to that's more or less yes. Um, um, in the mo in modern times, we and you can look. I'm happy to send you a comment about convention on the international convention on genocide um, that was created um, after the Holocaust. Um, part of it is that when you force people to leave, they don't necessarily have somewhere to go. But also the sense that like human beings have this like rich and deep connection to the land that they come from, and if you come in and like force them to move, that's a very like big traumatic thing that often is accompanied by a lot of death. Um, but also is typically motivated by like, I don't want you here for whatever reason. Um, so uh, like when we look at what's happening currently, like with the Rohingya uh, people in, um, in Myanmar, um, that like Myanmar just says like, yeah, we're gonna have to kill you. Like just go over the border to Bangladesh and like, you don't care. And the Rohingya would say like, no, this is our like ancestral land and we have a whole civilization here and we want to be here. Um, and so that, uh, forced population transfer by uh, by Myanmar. It's, I mean, the world is hesitant to label anything a genocide, but there's many people. Yes, please, Susan. So it's actually sort of two parts. So one is we could think about he put them on reservations, he put them in ghettos, 
all of those things are sort of correlates in our experience, maybe. Do we have any record of the serfdom of the entire Egyptian population ending? I mean, it says or alternatively, was it completely normal for the B'nai Israel to wind up as slaves to Paro? Because everybody was slaves to Paro. Great. That's exactly kind of where we're headed with this. Um, um, so that was perfect. But I do just want to, before we get there, um, I do just want to like take a quick pause and just like analyze the seed distribution model. So there's a few really interesting things that just tie into stuff we've heard. So, right, so yesterday, um, Rabbi Rappaport was saying, like, there's a really complicated piece of, like, how do you get food from where it grows to the people that need it, right? Like, that whole supply chain thing is, like, super duper, super duper complicated. And it plays out in all sorts of ways that are very relevant to our lives um, and to halakha, right? Like, one of the reasons why, like, why Shemitah is so impossible to observe in the modern day is that, like, supply chains are built around, like, and for these five days, the world's almonds come from Israel. And if like Israel loses its market share of those five days of almonds because it's Shemitah, um, then, uh, well, almonds are kind of a bad example because they grow on trees, but whatever, right? Like they're, they're a market share of like this thing that they produce every year because it's Shemitah, like you can't get that back because that's like a whole complicated like supply chain thing that, that can't just like be rejiggered every, uh, you know, every seventh year. So, um, so one of the interesting things that Joseph does is it, the, the emphasis on it being local. We collect it from here and we put it in a storehouse here. Like that, that actually like has some resonances with some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of Joseph being really super attentive to the supply chain. Um, now, um, so that's just like one of the like little small scale pieces of it. But the larger scale pieces of it, and now this is where we're kind of getting to Susan's point, is we would like to think of Joseph as this like brilliant mastermind, been through trauma, not look, you know, reunifies his family so selflessly and all of that. Like, on the other hand, we could say like Joseph enslaved an entire people. Like they were hungry and he took advantage of them and does. And is this what happens, right? Because the other word for like the government owning everything and then providing food to everyone from it. Um, that, that the other word for that could be communism, more or less, um, and 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 that is like, or theoretically, it, it hasn't necessarily played out like this ever in in real life. But like the theory, but or maybe like Adam Kibbutz does, right, or in a small scale. Um, like the theory of it is like, yeah, you don't own anything. We all work the land. The land grows food. It gets redistributed to people who need it, and and it's all kind of centrally owned by the government. Um, and that's kind of like Joseph goes from like a private model to like this public socialized model, sort of. But then you actually have the people working as serfs instead of as like co-owners. And that's where it sort of seems quite different from the communist sort of model that we might be familiar with. Um, but this, um, but there is something, something there to it. Like, could it kind of be done without, um, without the enslavement of the whole people. And this language of enslavement is like very um, obvious, gets repeated a few times. Like no one who's a reader of the Torah can see Abadim Lefaro. Like yeah, in the English, they use the word surf 
instead of um, slave. And I'm, I'm always hesitant to critique the JPS translation. My grandfather worked on it, but but I do think like the Hebrew really gives a resonance that the English here does not. Um, and um, and yeah, so but but this model of like the whole like we're gonna buy everything and through the process of buying all your stuff off of you and stripping you bare as you are in need of food to then like centralize all of the food producing elements, it, it at least worked. Like it at least kept the people alive. And then there were some pieces of it, they were sort of like, why did it have to be like this? So this is like a very challenging model in both directions. Now we're gonna get to what um, Susan was suggesting in a second, which is that, well actually here, we can look at what, what um, Rabbi Shai Held says about it, which is really exactly where you're going. He says, Joseph does save countless lives in disastrous times and brings abundant blessings, blessings to the Egyptians. And yet he exacts too high a price from them. Oh, everything they have, including freedom. That's just a typo by me. Um, everything they have, including their very freedom, and insists on making what should have been at best a temporary arrangement permanent. With those decisions, he plays with fire, and that fire will eventually wound his own family in unspeakable ways, because all of a sudden the Egyptian people are used to being of a with Pharaoh, and that makes it very easy to then take a whole other people and make them as well of a with Pharaoh. But then also once you're kind of enslaved, all you want to do is enslave someone else and put someone else lower than you on the food chain. Um, and so that kind of opened up this can of enslavement worms, let's say. Um, okay, so let's see what happens. Let's see what the like Israelite version of this poverty, right? Because what we see with Joseph is okay. Like, like let's 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 understand it from the individual's perspective. I'm an individual landowner in Egypt. It, um, I worked for all these years. I gave some of my produce to the government, or the government bought some of my produce off me. However that worked, and now I now it's the now it's the years of famine. So first I spend all my money. Now I don't have any money anymore. So not all my livestock. Okay, I don't have any livestock anymore. Now the government has bought my land and even my very um, my work, like my everything. Um, okay, so that is so, and it's such that you become a slave. So here's what here's how um, Devarim describes how you should do what you should do when that happens to a Jew. So when a Jew becomes so poor that they have sold off, they have no money left. They have um, no, not, no like items left to sell. No, their land has been sold. All they have left to sell is, let's say, themselves. So he yimacher l'chachicha ivriyo ivriyav abdechashi shani l'shanashvi t'shalchanu chuchi meimach. So the first response is for Joseph, it was ad hayom hazeh. In Egypt, it was ad hayom hazeh. And in Devarim, for Jews, it has a firm end at seven years, unless they to stay on, in which case there's an extension, but the slave always has an out. Um, and when you send the slave out on their own, you should not send them empty-handed. So not only that, but you have to give him like a starter kit, like a how to get back on his feet again on the shmita here. Um, he has to go with with um, the flock and, and with seeds and with all the stuff that, um, and, and with like great products and all the things that you have, you have to give him some of that stuff so he can kind of get ready to actually be productive on his own. Cause that's one of the hardest things, right? Like you, you free someone and then they don't have any stuff. So how are they supposed to survive once they're free? Um, like that's preposterous, right? So, so the Torah accounts for that. And the Torah says, the Zahar, this is the part that I think is so telling, the Zaharta, 
Bear in mind that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, God redeemed you, and therefore you have these commandments. So these commandments are in direct response to the slavery model of Egypt, which like so complicatedly was set up by Joseph himself. Um, and it, Joseph doesn't sell the people, and, right, and it's these scene, these patterns of seven, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, seven years of your Shemitah cycle. Like you feel like the Shemitah cycle is actually in some ways a response to this system that Joseph set up, right? It should have been, okay, the people pay in to the food for seven years. The next seven years, they become so poor and so depleted that they're like paying it all out again. But at the end of those seven years, right, that should be your Shemitah, seems like. That should be your Shemitah year, says Devarim to Joseph. And then you should have set everyone up to go back and be independent and be productive on your own. Okay, over the course of those seven years of famine, they're suffering, you're taking care of them because you're their like slave owner, whatever, in, in the way that you have, a, in a way that one might have in the conception of the Torah, a slave of your own people, which involves a lot of care and you know treating them very well. And then at the end of that, you set them free and you get them back on their feet again. And that... So I, I want to say that this, I think, is like a direct response to Joseph, um, or at least could be a direct response to like the Joseph enslavement piece. And I think the seventh piece of that is very, very resonant. Um, and the slavery piece and the direct connection to Egypt and that Joseph kind of invented Egyptian slavery. And that's what, and the Torah comes back in to say at the end of the description of the, of the Ebed Ivory, um, takes it back to, to Egypt and to Egyptian slavery. Um, that, 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 you know, we had this system, Egypt had this system, you're a slave forever, not so in the Jewish people, not so in the land of Israel. Um, seven is the most anyone can be, or six is the most anyone can be enslaved for, the seventh year people go free. And you set them up to live prosperous lives independently, independently again. Um, and, um, my grandfather, Professor Nathan Sarna, wrote, um, wrote about this, like, Ad Hayom Hazat thing. So he he explained he he's talking about um the Brachiate, not not the not the barn stuff. He says it supplies an explanation for the extraordinary contrast between the Egyptian system, which concentrated land ownership in the hands of the state, and the Israelite ideal of private ownership of property. It is also likely that the narrator wishes to emphasize the great benefits that Joseph brought to the crown, thus accentuating the base ingratitude of a leader pharaoh who did not know Joseph. So um, so my, my, my Saba doesn't take it to the direction of, um, of the, the Shemitah cycle potentially even being a response to these two sevens that we have set up here. But, um, but, but I did, I, I was kind of taken with, uh, or like I, I was, I was very influenced by this idea that like, it might account for the Israelite ideal of private ownership of property. And how did it, and then you have kind of like a origin story for how did Egypt not end up like that? And, and my grandfather was a historian of the ancient Near East. So when he says that land ownership was in the hands of the state, I, I don't have, um, I don't have the, the means to kind of agree or disagree with that. We're going to take him at his word, um, unless you know more than I do. Um, and, um, um, and so it's also something of an account for like how Egypt kind of got there, like added into the Joseph story. So that's sort of his read of what is happening here. Wow, look at time. We have to spend a little bit of time with Nehemiah. So it's 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 shorter, you'll see. Um okay. So here's Nehemiah. 
Um, so, okay, so here's where we are. We are in Shivat Zion. The temple has been rebuilt. The book of Nehemiah opened. The temple was already rebuilt in the book of Ezra. Okay, the question, are they one book? Are they two books? Fine, but we, we restart the count of chapters in Nehemiah, so we're going to call it a separate book for now. Um, we can have a whole class on Ezra Nehemiah some other time. We'll talk about all that. Um, fine. We are in Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the first chapter of Nehemiah, we Nehemiah, with Israel and he starts rebuilding the walls of the walls of Jerusalem and repopulating the city of Jerusalem. That's all a big project in the book of Nehemiah. Um, the temple has already re been rebuilt before he ever gets to Israel from Persia. Um, okay. And he gets there and he's like, Nehemiah is just, I think, like such a fantastic um, leader of the Jewish people. And that comes out sort of over and over again in the way he is talks to God and in the way he leads the people. And, and we're going to see this. this is a really great, I think a really great example of it. So he get, he's in the land, says, there's poor people in the land and wealthy people in the land and the poor Jews in the land of Israel raise up a great complaint against the wealthy people. They say our sons and daughters are numerous. We must get grain to eat in order to live, we've had to pawn off our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get green in order to stave off hunger. So that's kind of sounding familiar, right? Like we're hungry and we've given everything we had in order to get green. We've sold off all of our ever all of our belongings. And we and the others say that taxes are so high that we had to. Um, borrow money against our fields in order to pay the king's tax, which essentially means um, that we've used our fields as collateral, but we can't afford to pay our, our mortgage, essentially. That's, that's what that is. Um, we're as good as our brothers, our children are as good as theirs, but we poor Jews, we're selling our sons and daughters into slavery. Um, and, and, and like we've already, we're powerless, our fields and our vineyards already belong to others. Like we've, we've lost all of our money, we've lost all of our property, and we're even selling our own children into slavery, we poor Jews. And there's all these wealthy Jews who are the ones who are buying it off of us and, and keeping us in this situation. So Nehemiah says, this story, these stories that people told me, I love this. Yeshu, do say this, Yeshu say that. And you see also like, you're in, you're in a, like a much later stage of Tanakh and a much later stage of Hebrew, and it's already starting to sound like, um, like just like Yeshua, like you know, like in, in the way that that you have in halakhic literature. Um, but but Nehemiah, this like amazing listener, is is repeating back story, like horrible, heart wrenching stories that people are telling him, and it makes him very angry. And he says, like, I, I was very angry when I heard their cries, the Ezhadvarim Ha'ila, and again the Zakatam, right? That's the, the Jews are a Zoakim when they are enslaved as well. Um, in Egypt, they likely be alive. Um, right, so I, I, I thought about it and then I decided I was going to yell at the nobles and the prefects. Um, and I said to them, um, Masa ish bachiva tamet noshim um, are you are you guys actually? I said to them, are you guys pressing loans? Are you claiming on the loans that you made to your brothers? And then I got together a whole crowd as I confronted um, the nobles and the prefects. 
i.e. like the wealthy Jews, so didn't we just go on this whole expedition to buy back our brothers who've been sold into slavery, and now you yourselves are enslaving them again? What's wrong with you, says Nathaniel? And they were silent. They didn't have any answer to it. Um, and then he said, See, and this is terrible what you guys are doing. Um, and hello, be your you should you should act in a God-fearing way, and also you should and also like our enemies are gonna see this and they'll have room, they'll, they'll be able to reproach us. Um and he says, I'm gonna lead the way. I, my brothers, my servants, but we also have claims of money and grain, i.e., people have borrowed from me as well. I'm going to relieve all these loans and you're going to follow suit. Release all of the loans, give back the fields, give back the vineyards, give back the olive trees, give back the homes, give back the claims of silver, grain, wine, oil, all of that that you've been pressing on them, release all of the loans. And they say, yes, we'll do that. And they say, yes, yes, we're going to do it. You're right, we're going to relieve all the loans. And Nehemiah says, all right, we're going to, we're going to notarize this contract. We're going to, I'm going to bring the priests and I'm going to um, put them under oath to keep this promise. Um, and then, and then he does this kind of like, Nehemiah, like he's not really, he's not, we don't think of him as a prophet, but he sometimes does these like prophet-y things. Um, so I shook out the bosom of my garment, Chatani, Naarti. Um, so may God shake free of his household and property any person who doesn't keep this promise, right? He shakes out his garment and then says, so may God shake out, right? You can imagine, like, Ezekiel doing something like that. Um, and all the people gathered there, right? He had, like, this big, this is, like, a big, um, I love these big gatherings of people. Uh, they happen over and over again in the book of Nehemiah. And everyone is there, says, Amen. Um, and they praise the Lord. Um, and the people kept their promise to relieve um, all of the loans. So you have the Joseph model, which is great, you're going to be so poor that you're going to be enslaved to us, and then you're going to be enslaved to us forever. You do have some Parshani, by the way, who say, you know, like, Oh, like they only give a fifth of their of their income in in, in taxes. Like that's nothing. Uh, let me tell you about taxes. Like that's so generous. Um, and so there are there's a lot, a lot, a lot of of ink spilled trying to like defend Joseph's um, setup in Egypt. But I do think that Devarim and then seeing the Chania force the people in his time to really live up to the challenge of Devarim, which is releasing people from their loans and releasing from their debt, giving them back their land and saying, yep, like you've been born for long enough, let's try and reset you up and, and get this re-going again. Um, seeing the Chania kind of live out that uh, version of Devarim, I think gives us the it gives us an opening to say, like, Joseph's version, where they're slaves forever, is not the appropriate way to deal with hunger. The appropriate way is to help people and to give them the dignity to say, let me try. Let me sell this stuff. Let me sell that stuff. But when they get to a certain point where there's nothing left to sell and they're hungry and they're suffering, then at a certain point, you have to just 
do everything you can to get them back on their feet, which I think is really um, what we saw um, by the people who, who have spoken to us these past couple of days um, with all of the kind of like wraparound services promised by the ARC and the dignity offered by Muspia and the incredible amount of food distribution we saw from Met Council um, and Mazone working to feed all of America through, um, through greater SNAP benefits and through other policies um, that, that really, without, without it being alone, without it impoverishing the people who, who are getting the food in the process or further impoverishing people who are getting the food in the process. Um, so I think there's, it's, it's kind of beautiful to see other people sort of living up to our, to the, the dreams laid out, um, and the values laid out in, in some of our really core texts. Um, and I'll open it up for questions in a second, but I did just want to bring this one kind of prophetic ideal from, from Isaiah. This is from, we read this as a Haftarah, but it's also the, it's right before, um, the fast day Haftarah that we read. Um, this is that same, this is that same chapter, and um, the, when we fast, one of the reasons, well, the, the Talmud says that like the best thing about a fast is that you can give tzedakah, because if you're not eating one day, then you have more money or more food available to give to other people. Uh, there's a great organization, by the way, it's called Fast for Feast, um, and you can find them online. It's a Jewish organization, and every fast day, they collect um, money for hunger. Um, to fight hunger, um, which is which is really like the, the Talmud says that's all. In some ways, the point of fasting is to have enough to give to other people. So any money you don't spend on whatever it is, breakfast, lunch, and dinner on a fast day, you can give to them. And um, and and you can think about that every time we you go to Shul and you hear Yeshua Shemvi Matzo on a fast day, and remember that the vision expressed by Isaiah at the beginning of that chapter is. All who are thirsty, come for water. Even if you have no money, come buy food and eat. Buy food without money, wine and milk without cost. Um, in the Messianic era, we hope that that will be feasible and possible, or maybe with a universal basic income, who knows? Um, uh, but but that, that I think, certainly is, is a dream of laid out by Isaiah, if not totally um, practicable yet in our day. Um, all right, I'm going to stop sharing, and I'll take a few minutes of questions. But in case people are going to pop off during the questions, I wanted to thank you for joining us on this journey this week and, um, and also last week. Um, and our whole winter's mod, and thank you for, for learning with us here at Fiction. All right, uh, if anyone has questions, I know I just like talked a lot the last hour, um, but I'm, I'm all ears. I've been just listening and thinking about, you're speaking to me? Yeah. I've been thinking about the history of this whole issue in this country with the end of slavery and the idea which didn't get implemented of 40 acres and a mule and that whole idea i mean it's not like we never heard of it before that's where that comes from when the slaves were emancipated many of them were agricultural workers and had done this kind of work and this was still an agricultural country so the way egypt was so if you were going to provide for people, you wouldn't set them up as a shopkeeper or whatever. You'd give them the wherewithal, the what they needed to, to have an agricultural life. 
the other thing that occurred to me was if the Israelites, when they came to Egypt, when Joseph was during the years of the famine, remember when they came there, he told them to tell Pharaoh that they were shepherds and he was going to have them go to the place where that was okay because to the Egyptians, that was a lowly occupation or at least a, a not cool occupation. But yeah. it also would be land which wouldn't grow crops. Sheep do not graze. You don't graze, you don't, you don't, you graze sheep where you can't even graze cattle. You keep, right. you, because it's, it's like New England. Okay. Yeah, really, that's the, that's the whole point in a sense. The, the Israelites never had this problem when they were living in Egypt originally because the land was not part of the growing grain and feeding all the people. As you said, the, the, the cities were in the midst of the, of the grain growing land. So that was the way that part of it worked. But Goshen was separate. And so they were never. Which is why they don't start out as slaves. Only once you have a new pharaoh that arises, everyone else is already slaves. And, what's and then you have a new pharaoh that arises. When yeah. you take people's land away from them, the land that they know how to make productive, then even people who know how to do that sort of thing can't do it very well because the land they're stuck on, like as you said, here you are in Wyoming. I mean, you know, the people who know how to grow things in Wyoming, but the people who don't live there and who haven't had that experience, who aren't exposed to that, they haven't a clue. And that's yeah. what happens. And so you really, Absolutely. it's a deracination. It's a total separation. Yeah. Susan, yeah, please. So I know this isn't about the hunger part, but everybody else is still slaves, except the Jewish people who are living in Goshen. So it's it's nearly natural for a king of Egypt, for Paro, to say, oh, they're seeming a little too empowered. I like having a disempowered polity. I don't like having an empowered on their own land polity. I think I better make them like everybody else and slaves. And more than that, right? Not just empowered. There's so many of them and they're going to take over the whole land, right? That's the sweet part of that. Right, so that even, but even if that was even if that was an illusion, they were still maybe the only citizens with any power, and yet they were still foreigners. That was the other piece of it, is that they didn't assimilate. So the foreigners are the only one with power. That's not a tolerable situation for a monarch. Right. Or, well, you have the priests, but they get all of their power from the monarch. So right. meaning, right, they're powerful, and they eat from the, right, they eat from the monarch's table, basically, um, so they have all this stuff, but it's it's actually pharaohs, whereas, right, exactly as you're saying, the other population that still has freedom are these foreigners who are growing and growing and growing with fear that they're going to take it over. Yeah, absolutely. Isabel, any thoughts on 40 acres and the mule? <laughs> I mean, didn't happen. It's a good case for reparations you've made. Oh, that's not, that's only the beginning case of reparations. You can do way better than that in Shmoat. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, 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 okay, but actually to, to like take what you're saying even more seriously, um, because in, in addition to the Jewish people, literally when they left the land of Egypt, took their own reparations with them. Um, but um, 
but but yeah, I mean, I think that like the idea of saying of what Devarim describes as when you um, when you free somebody, you have to like send them out with stuff. Calling that stuff reparations, I think, is 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 important. That kind of label. Well, in the role, of, for example, of indentured servitude, you take a kid and you teach them how a trade. They need to, for, for whatever the reason, they need to go to work. You take them on. You pay them, if anything, not much, but you house them and you feed them and you clothe them and you teach them a trade, which is the equivalent of 40 acres and a mule. And then, and then when the, the years of servitude are up, their indenture is up, they can go out, put themselves on the market and they have a trade and they can get a job and they can do something. So in a sense, you've, you have, it's a good deal. It's a good deal for everybody. It really, it really worked. It did. I mean, so many people came to this country 200, 250 years ago during the period of the colonies. And that was how they, that was how they did what they did. Remember the book, Johnny Tremaine from a million years ago? He was an indentured, he was indentured to Paul Revere. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we're at time. This is very interesting. Uh, thank you all so much for joining, for the good questions and insights and the Torah that you all shared. Um, and I hope we thank get you. the opportunity to learn Torah together again in the future.